Um, thanks, Penil, and thanks again to Nupi for hosting me uh, again here in Oslo. I'm really delighted to, to be here. And, um, and indeed, what I wanted to do uh, today is really to not talk you through this book, uh, because hopefully you're all going to, after the seminar, go and buy it and read it, um, but really give you a bit of a sense as to why this book came about and what some of the um, sort of inside story behind all this is. Um, so let me just begin by saying a few words as to why I decided to write uh, this book. Um, so the idea came uh, when I was sitting in a beach in Sri Lanka uh, after what had essentially been two extremely complicated and certainly tiring uh, years, because the truth is that to produce the global strategy, it actually took the best parts of, uh, uh, of two years. I mean, the work, I mean, the, the very first idea uh, came basically in the fall of 2014. Uh, so as Federica Mogherini was about uh, to take up her position as HRVP, um, I remember first putting the question to her in September of that year. So she started her mandate in, in November and asking her whether she would be interested in producing a new strategy already. You know, people like me in the world of academia and think tanks uh, were already saying and thinking for a long time, you know, the 2003 strategy is kind of a bit out of date. Uh, you know, it has been uh, around for far too long and certainly the world does not uh, look so prosperous, so secure and so free as that strategy had started uh, out. So anyway, it took the best part of, uh, of two years really to produce the strategy. And once, you know, that baby had been delivered, uh, I really felt, you know, as I, as I was kind of finally relaxing, that there had been so many thoughts and memories and anecdotes that I'd lived through in those two years. And I really, at a very superficial level, just wanted to fix it all on my mind and therefore on paper, because that's how I tend to function, uh, before all those memories faded away. So that was a very first initial impulse, if you like, that, that I had. But then when I started thinking a bit more deeply about it, it became obvious to me that there was actually another reason uh, why I wanted to do it. Uh, and it's basically a reason that goes to the heart not only of, what, of this book, but also of what I wanted to say to you uh, today. And it's basically a story about different worlds that meet. Uh, it's the world of politics, the HRVP uh, herself. It's the world of institutions, of officials and, and diplomats. And it's the world of people like myself that, that come from outside, and most of you uh, that come from outside. The world of think tanks, the world of universities, of civil society, etc. And it's true that whereas we all are interested in the same things, we're all interested in Europe, in the European Union, and foreign policy, uh, and we tend to work actually on very similar, if not the same issues, the truth is that actually there is far too little, in my view, interaction, real interaction, um, and mix between these different worlds. Yes, there are conferences, there are meetings. Uh, if you're an academic, you go and do your interviews. Uh, but, but they're all very limited mm, in time, moments uh, of interaction. And what I felt from, from the experience that I lived, lived through was, on the one hand, it became very obvious to me, as I'll be then describing in, in the rest of my talk, that the global strategy, good or bad, as you may think, but it would certainly have been very different had it been written exclusively from within the machinery. 
but then on the so I, I felt that if you like that was the contribution of the world I was coming from that brought if you like to this process and to this product. But then I thought, you know, at the end of this process, that payback time had had come, uh, and that it was also my responsibility uh, as someone that was coming from the outside to, in a sense, share the experience that I'd lived uh, through with others like myself, hmm? uh, like like uh, all all of you. So I really felt the sort of urge of of, of sharing an experience. Uh, and telling a story as to, as I said, how this particular process and how this particular product would have actually been very different had it been concocted only by one of these different uh, worlds. So let me just begin by saying a few words as to why there is an EU global strategy. Uh, and that is really, I think, the key question. Uh, and it's the question that was posed to me when I phoned up uh, the person that had been in my shoes 13 years before, uh, that is Robert Cooper, who on behalf of Javier Solana uh, had drafted the European security strategy. And when uh, Federica decided to entrust uh, to me this, uh, this task, I phoned Robert up and I asked him for some advice, as one does. And, and Robert asked me, the very first question that he asked me was the most important <laughs> to me in, in the next couple of years which is, why are you doing it? Uh, and you know, I start scratching my, cell, my head. Why are we doing it? Uh, I mean, obviously, we kind of thought about it, and this had been somewhat in between you know, the lines of many of the conversations that I'd had with the HIVP, but I'd never really sat down and sort of schematically thought through why is it we're doing it. Um, and the, the why, of course, in the case, and the reason why Robert asked me that question was that the why in the case of the 2003 European security strategy was a very clear why. Uh, this was a, the, the time in which Europe had been, Europe and the transatlantic relationship had been very deeply divided over the war in Iraq. Uh, and essentially the European security strategy was a means, in my view, a very successful means of recreating a narrative within which these different divisions, if you like, could be bridged over. Uh, and, and if you think about that why question uh, and the answer that was given to the, that why question back in 2003, you understand the specific choices that were made in the 2003 European security strategy. You know, why, for instance, pick effective multilateralism? Well, you know, multilateralism, that heeded more to the French and German position at the time in defense of the United Nations system, effective tended more towards, more, if you like, the Anglo-Saxon UK, but also obviously US uh, critique of multilateralism saying, well, you know, it's got to be effective. It has to be able to, to deliver. Uh, if you think about terms like preventive diplomacy, uh, again, used in the 2003 European security strategy, very much uh, a, a reply, a European reply to George W. Bush's uh, preemptive uh, action, preemptive strikes. I can't remember exactly how it was framed back, uh, back then. So that why question was critical in 2003. And so the reason, rightly so, that Robert asked me that question is that the answer to that question would have determined the way in which 13 years later, uh, the security strategy or global strategy, I'll come to this in a minute, would have actually taken shape. Um, so I start scratching my head uh, as to that why question. Uh, and talking to 
many people, obviously beginning with the HRVP, but also having first conversations within the institutions, both in the EAS uh, and in, uh, in the Commission, uh, of course with the member uh, states. Uh, but also knowing what the debate was from my own world, as I said, the world of universities and, and think tanks, it became obvious to me that there were three, in this case, three particular reasons uh, why a new strategy was necessary. And those three, oops, I'm sorry, I forgot to do this. And those three uh, reasons essentially determined uh, the approach that was taken to the strategy, the content of the strategy, uh, and the timing of the strategy. So motivation number one, which I called the bureaucratic rationale for a new strategy. And this was obviously the rationale that was coming from the institutions, uh, from the officials, from the diplomats, particularly from the officials, I would say. Uh, and it was essentially, to put it in the most simple terms, uh, the strategy as a means of implementing the Lisbon Treaty. Uh, what do I mean by this? Uh, the Lisbon Treaty had already been in being uh, for five years, and uh, as a consequence of the Lisbon Treaty, a number of innovations were introduced when it came to European foreign policy, and in particular the creation of the double-hatted uh, HR and VP uh, role, the creation of the EAS, essentially the creation of a hybrid, mm. uh, the creation of hybrid institutions, a hybrid system that would bring together the external relations side, coming obviously from the Commission, with the more traditional foreign and security policy side coming from the council and therefore the member states. Now those first five years of implementation of the Lisbon Treaty had not been a spectacular success in terms of actually giving life to this hybrid. Uh, we know and certainly when we came towards the end of 2014 there was also quite a lot of fatigue about the institutional turf wars uh, in Hong Poi Schumann. Not that those turf wars have disappeared, uh, but certainly back then there was this very strongly felt feeling that it was necessary to turn the page. And it's true that uh, the first HRVP, Cathy Ashton, uh, and I don't feel anyone could, could blame her because she did have a really difficult uh, task ahead, but it's true that she did, by most accounts, uh, uh, drop basically her hat as vice president of the commission fairly early on. Um, so new commission starts, uh, new HRVP starts, uh, and there is this general desire to try and turn this page and try to really implement the Lisbon Treaty. And hence, the approach to the strategy, meaning a strategy that would not only be a security strategy, but a strategy that would be a global strategy. And it would be a global strategy not only because it would be global thematic uh, geographically, but because primarily it would be global thematically. Uh, and by thematically, it would therefore bring together the diplomacy and the defense, if you like, side of things, together with the trade and the development and the humanitarian assistance and the energy and the migration and the, and the, and the, and the. Uh, and therefore, a first bureaucratic rationale for a strategy which determined its entire approach, would I would say is a sort of essentially bureaucratic and institutional uh, rationale. Uh, second uh, reason why, uh, why the, uh, the strategy came about uh, is, I would say, a reason that comes largely from the world outside. Mm. Now, what did the world outside uh, end up looking in 2014, beginning of 2014? Well, it's a very messy world, a world of uh, crises and conflicts erupting everywhere, uh, from the east to the south to within, of course, the European Union uh, itself. 
And of course, when you are in uh, crisis mode, you tend to react. Uh, and therefore, you don't, uh, you, th th there is a general lack of uh, an overall sense of direction of where is it you're going. Mm -hmm. uh, there is all reaction, very little proaction, if you like. And this was a critique that came particularly from our world, mm -hmm. the world outside, the world of think tanks, the world of universities, essentially criticizing uh, the EU for. On the one hand, an absence of strategic vision uh, and strategic action, uh, and on the other, a sort of EU that was slightly losing its bearings. You know, for, for a long time, uh, there had been this general sense that the European Union is a normative foreign policy actor. Mm, this is something that has filled pages and pages of journals and books on European foreign policy. And then all of a sudden, I mean, there was always a debate of, you know, well, you know, is it really so normative or doesn't it just pursue its uh, sort of crude interest? But this was the overall terms of the, of the academic debate, I would say. And then all of a sudden you have a world which is filled with, with conflicts, with crises, uh, in which indeed there is all this reaction, in which there is the tendency, therefore, to start acting in a more geopolitical or realist, or, or, real or if not even realpolitik uh, way. And so essentially, there was, I think, a real need back then to develop a strategy that would somehow conceptualize a new way of doing European foreign policy, a way which, on the one hand, would remain true to the values and the principles, but on the other, it would recognize and acknowledge that we live in a messy world. Mm. And it's a far messier world than the one that we thought we lived in uh, back in the early 2000s. And this is where, for, for instance, uh, notions such as principled pragmatism come in, a notion that is very much at the core, if you like, of the global strategy. And it's a notion that came from my exchanges from, you know, with, with the academic and the think tank world. Uh, so I think that was a big value added of that world onto the global strategy. And essentially, principle pragmatism that could come across as looking like an oxymoron uh, uh, actually isn't. Because basically what it means is uh, there needs to be the pragmatism in terms of the assessment of the situation. And the situation can be very messy. Uh, and there are no easy ways out, even if you want to do the absolutely, you know, sort of ethical uh, uh, thing, you know, uh, to, to, to do. Um, but because, so therefore the pragmatism has to come in in the assessment, but we have to be obviously guided by our own principles in the way in which we approach that situation. And it's being guided by your own principles in a way which doesn't uh, impose those principles on other, or even take for granted that those principles are shared by others. That's where the pragmatism has to come in. Uh, but we have to be true to ourselves, basically, in the way in which we act in, in foreign policy. So I would say that that second rationale, uh, which is, in a sense, a policy rationale, which is uh, very much linked to, as I said, this world outside hmm, uh, that, that I was personally com coming from, also had, I think, a deep impact on the way in which the strategy itself was, uh, was, was conceived and, and, and approached. Then the final rationale, which is possibly the most important, uh, is the political rationale. Uh, and the political rationale essentially determined not only a lot of the content, but above all, I would say, the timing. So this was the rationale that I would say was mainly coming from the HRVP. Mm. Uh, and this is the story about unity. 
uh, and the importance of unity. And it's a similar rationale to the rationale back in 2003. As I said, even back in 2003, uh, the whole aim was that of bringing back the member states, and in particular France and Germany on the one hand and the United Kingdom on the other, after the divide over Iraq. In 2014, 2015, we were not so lucky as to have only one divide. There were many divides. We were divided over Russia. We were divided over the Eurozone. We were divided over migration. We were divided on different understandings of the role of European defense. And, and the list, if you like, continues. And so basically, the political aim, I would say, of the strategy, the political rationale of the strategy that was coming from the political level uh, was a strategy that could create and recreate a narrative within which uh, these divisions would not necessarily be removed and subside altogether, but they would somehow be bridged uh, somewhat. And that third rationale was critical in determining the timing of the global strategy. Uh, and here we come to the whole Brexit uh, story. Now, in all honesty, uh, when we were working on the global strategy, uh, the assumption was that uh, if there were to be a Remain vote, we would have carried on, no problem, uh, and we would have produced the global strategy just a few days, uh, you know, presented it at the European Council that was only four or five days uh, later. If there would have been a Brexit uh, vote, we would, would have not, uh, and we would have, uh, you know, sort of reflected, uh, <coughs> cried, reflected, you know, uh, mourned, uh, and then we would have seen what to do. Um, and Indeed, that morning, uh, you know, when I put my alarm clock at 5 a.m. in the morning, like I guess many other people, and I saw the news and got a heart attack, uh, and uh, I got a double heart attack. I mean, the first was for Brexit, and the second was because of two years of work going down the drain <laughs> all of a sudden. Uh, and, and that morning, you know, sort of uh, sending text messages with the HRVP, and she said, you know, let me make some phone calls and I need to figure out what, what to do. And my understanding was we were not going to go ahead. So much so that I booked a holiday at the beach. Uh, and off I go Friday evening to the beach only to speak to the HRVP that evening. And she says to me, we're going ahead. And she said, we're going ahead because the work is done. Now, what does she mean by the work is done? It was not the simple, the work is done, the strategy is there. The deeper political meaning, and it goes back to this issue about unity, was, you know, this is a time politically in which all the talk is about disintegration. It's about the domino effect after Brexit. Uh, the, the most, you know, existential probably moment in the whole history of the European Union. And little as a piece of the puzzle as it may be, the global strategy is ultimately something that demonstrates that we can still be united. Why? Because this is a text that is 10,000 words long, that was uh, negotiated line by line, word by word, comma by comma, by 28, yes, 28 member states, uh, by the commission, everyone included in two years of work, and the work was done. So politically speaking, if not 48 hours after Brexit, then when to send out a message of, yes, we can still be united? So that political rationale was really instrumental uh, in, in determining the timing of the strategy at a moment in which, 
frankly speaking, it was not the obvious choice for her to, 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 to make, you know. Uh, and many also criticized that choice at that particular point in time. Uh, but she was always absolutely convinced that actually it was the right thing to do. And, and I'll come to this uh, towards the end of my speech, uh, I think that facts have actually vindicated the fact that she was, uh, she was correct. Anyway, so these three rationales really determined, as I said, the approach, the content, and the timing uh, of the global strategy. Now, let me briefly move on to the process. You know, how was all this produced? Uh, and again, the methods that were used were hybrid methods uh, that uh, were the product of the fact that this was a hybrid exercise, meaning I was involved in it. Uh, behind my back, I had you know, my own think tank. I had uh, the EUISS. I had basically my world. Huh? And my world is this world. It's you guys. Uh, so there was that uh, part of it. Uh, there were the institutions, and there was obviously the political uh, level. And those three dimensions, again, very much shaped the way in which the actual process was, was designed. So the outsider. The outsider developed all sorts of devious methods <laughs> to, to, to design this process. Um, so uh, just to give you a, a couple of, uh, of anecdotes and, uh, and sort of hints to, uh, about this, um, essentially... It was clear to me that I needed to have regular contact uh, with the member states and with the commission. So I organized, you know, we appointed points of contact uh, from the 28 member states that I saw once a month uh, regularly. Uh, likewise, we uh, sort of set up a commission task force in which, as part of the task force, there were representatives for pretty much every DG representing the external uh, dimension of, uh, of that DG. So from research and infrastructure to mobility, uh, energy, apart from obviously the obvious ones, development and trade and neighborhood, etc. So saw these two groups uh, regularly. Uh, now, fairly early on, I immediately understood that I would start getting kind of inundated by non-papers. And I really started fearing that all this stuff that I was getting was really going to be quite useless uh, if it wasn't directed somewhat. Uh, and so I decided, and it wasn't kind of a normal way of <laughs> proceeding, but I decided to um, send out these questionnaires because I really felt quite strongly that the skeleton of the global strategy had to be a top-down skeleton mm -hmm. uh, in order to have some sort of both political and analytical clarity. Uh, it could not be too democratic the way it was done. But the flesh obviously had to come from everyone else, uh, from the member states, from the commission, etc. And so I felt that by sending out these questionnaires that were basically organized along the skeleton that we had in mind would enable us to solicit input uh, that would actually be useful uh, to, the, to the overall like design that we had that we had in mind um, so I, I I sent out these questionnaires and I remember uh, a meeting this was a meeting with the Commission uh, in which I explained the fact that you know I was distributing these questionnaires and they had to work on them over the Christmas holidays uh, and you know beginning of January they had to you know had a deadline to send the, uh, send their input in and and I said well you know please when you answer the questions don't simply tell me what you're doing now. Don't tell me what you're going to do tomorrow. 
don't even tell me what you're going to want to do in one year. You know, just really think outside the box and, you know, tell me what you would like to see happen in five or six years. And uh, so one hand goes up and, um, and uh, this colleague says, uh, Natalie, you need to understand. I oh, know, no, sorry, before I say that. Um, and I said to him, you know, think outside the box, you know, imagine, you know, sort of be creative and think outside the box. So hand goes up. Says, Natalie, you need to understand something. We can't think outside the box. We are the box. <laughs> but actually, he was wrong. He was wrong because being so, sort of um, solicited in a, in a clear way, actually, the input that I received was incredibly valuable. Uh, valuable in a way in which I could not have received from the outside world. Uh, because you need to be in the mechanism, in the machine, to really have that nitty-gritty detail. But then, obviously, you need to bring back to another, you know, a certain level of, 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 of abstraction again, but you need to know those nitty-gritty details in order to go back to that level of abstraction in a way which actually is, is meaningful. Um, so, you know, the questionnaire, another devious method that probably no, you know, sort of... Um, no insider <laughs> would have come up with, uh, was the fact that I, again, I understood fairly early on that there is a complete, you know, I feel a bit embarrassed with Thierry here, but there's a real obsession with text and words. Mm? And officials love track changes. They absolutely love track changes. Everything gets track changed. <laughs> um, but I, and in fact, so much so, going back to the questionnaires, that uh, at some point I remember one um, returned the questionnaire not with the answers to the questions, but with the track changed questions themselves. <laughs> anyway, so there's this real obsession with text and commas and words and everything. Uh, and of course, at some point, words matter. Uh, but I felt that if we were immediately, you know, sort of six months, eight months before, to get bogged down in the words and the commas, we would just lose the forest for the trees, you know. Uh, and so I, what I did um, was, indeed, I was already drafting the various chapters of the global strategy. Uh, but I, when I met both with the commission and with the member states, I asked a colleague to summarize me. And uh, that is the text that I distributed. And I made sure that I told to everyone that actually this was not my writing. So there's no point quibbling over the words because this was not going to be the actual text. But all the content was there. I mean, these summaries were not really summaries. They were rewritten, but they were pretty much the same length uh, as the actual chapter. Uh, but it really enabled, I felt, uh, a sort of conversation about the content and not about the, the fine wording. That would come afterwards. But then, of course, so this was kind of, you know, devious me coming from the outside. Uh, but then what couldn't have come from me uh, was the um, sort of sensibility of knowing when was important to speak with whom and how much. Mm. Uh, and this had, in a sense, less to do with the actual content uh, and more to do with the so-called buy-in. So I kept on hearing this word buy-in, buy-in. You need to get buy-in from the member states. You need to get buy-in from this and that and the other. Uh, and, and of course, I understood uh, that that buy-in essentially meant, uh, and again, I could have never had the, the knowledge uh, uh, to know when was the right moment and the appropriate moment for me to speak to 
the political and security committee? Uh, when did I have to speak to the military committee? Uh, when did I have to speak to political directors, to security directors, to defense directors, to secretary generals of ministries of foreign affairs? And the list gets longer. Now, were these meetings useful for content? No. The, the content meetings were my regular monthly meetings with the commission and the member states because it's there that I could go through, you know, detail chapter by chapter, bit by bit of the entire thing. With all of these other levels, which were generally much higher levels than the ones that I regularly met, but they felt they needed to also have something, you know, a, a say in this. That was buy, that's what buy-in means. So going over and doing the same presentation over and over again, but then everyone felt that they were part of this process. Huh? And, it, and, it, and, and as I said, that is something that I couldn't have known as someone coming from the outside. Uh, and I needed to have, you know, sort of colleagues in the EAS in particular that steered me into this, uh, into this process. And then obviously another thing that came uh, from, from the outside, uh, the outsider, if you like, in this process was the fact that there was so much engagement uh, with, if you like, civil society broadly understood, you know. Uh, and it's not just the over 50 conferences in every single capital. Uh, it's the meetings here in Oslo, uh, in Japan, in the US, in Australia, etc. But it's also, you know, the student essay competition. Uh, it's the op-eds commission to the various experts. I mean, it's a, an entire process that was constructed because it was constructed also by someone that was coming from the outside and that understood how important it is to get that input coming from the outside world into the actual content of the, of the strategy itself. Anyway, uh, moving on to the content itself uh, of, the, of the global strategy and again reflecting how the content reflects the input from these uh, different, uh, different worlds. I would say that the outsider mm, uh, contributed to what I think is a fairly analytical organization of the text. Uh, again, it wasn't something that would have probably come from the institutions. Uh, there is a far greater tendency to organize things in sort of perhaps more concrete terms, mm, through geographies, you know, so what do we say about Russia and what do we say about China and what do we say about Africa? Uh, and I really strongly felt that that would have made the strategy basically be out of date in you know, three weeks, i.e. it would not have been a strategy. Um, so I insisted quite a lot for a different organization of the text. I had to give in uh, <laughs> on various issues. Uh, in particular, I remember that what is currently the uh, goal on regional cooperative orders uh, I initially wanted to organize according to four cardinal point, you know, sort of directions, sort of the north, the south, and east and west. Uh, but the geographies that that would have led to would have been a bit too complicated <laughs> for, the, for the institution. So when I first presented it, I mean, the member states looked at me like I was completely mad. Anyway, so I gave in on, on that one. <laughs> um, but, but at the same time, I wanted to avoid very classical geographies, you know. So I did insist, for instance, in keeping the Middle East and Africa together. Uh, there, were, there were so many interactions across regions uh, that at times the way in which institution, institutions are organized geographically leads so many of these interactions basically to escape us. Uh, and, you know, I mean, as I said, there are some very obvious examples 
both if we think East, uh, if we think uh, Russia, China, uh, if we think South, if we think, as I said, Middle East, uh, Africa. But anyway, there was a, a sort of give and take on, on, on both sides, I think, on, on that one. Uh, another interesting um, debate that really was a debate that reflected different debates, be it within academia and within the institutions, was the whole interest values uh, business. So, you know, in, in academia, I'm slightly simplifying here because it's a very complicated debate, but I would say that there has been a dominant narrative, and I was hinting at this before, which is, yes, you know, the EU speaks interest, but actually it does values. Uh, sorry, it speaks values, but actually it does interests. So, then there are slightly more complicated stories that emerge from, uh, from academia, meaning actually it's quite difficult to disentangle the two. But I would say that that has been a, you know, sort of values versus interests uh, approach coming from one strand, if you like, of academia. Then come the institutions and the member states that say, no, 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 it's hand in hand. It's uh, values and interests, you know, and uh, we, the two go together, but still looking at them as very different things that, you know, have to coexist uh, and, and come along together. And I think putting those together, uh, perhaps with a slightly constructivist bias uh, in all of this, um, I insisted very strongly in actually only talking about interests uh, but doing it in a way which would embed values that made it obvious that actually one informs the other and vice versa. And I really had to fight this one out. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't easy because uh, um, although, you know, if I were to put myself in a box, I would say I definitely would put myself in the values box. And here I was suddenly advocating to only talk about interests uh, and... Uh, it became actually quite bizarre because I knew where I was coming from, but all of a sudden my best allies were those that were kind of into the interest in the tough sense of the word. So all of a sudden it was me and the French, <laughs> you know, fighting this out. <laughs> um, but of course I was coming from a completely <laughs> sort of opposite direction to, to this debate. Uh, and so again, you know, to me it was fascinating the way in which this really, uh, you know, it was this sort of, constant conversation uh, between the outside world and the inside, if you like, uh, world. Um, anyway, let me move on because I think I've been speaking for far too long. Um, but let me just move on to the what next, mm -hmm. uh, the what next after, after a strategy. Um, and in, you know, in, in all honesty, I think that already when we began the particular, I mean, this particular process on the global strategy, there was a very strong push uh, particularly by the, from the member states, to insist that this had to be an actionable strategy. Uh, and in this respect, very different from the 2003 precedent. 2003 precedent, according to its authors, Javi Solana and Robert Cooper, is not a strategy. Uh, if by strategy we mean something that puts in relation ends to means. Uh, Robert would describe the 2003 European security strategy more as a strategic concept. And I think he's right. Uh, and the point is that back in 2003, there was no need to act or rather to change action because things were actually going fairly well, or so we thought. Uh, and so the purpose of the strategy, it goes back to what is the motivation. The motivation of that strategy was a narrative that would bring everyone together. It need not be actionable, therefore, because it was all about creating that narrative. 
quite obvious in 2015, 2016, that, that, that the global strategy couldn't stop there. It, it would not have been judged as a success had it simply come up with a nice and convincing narrative that would have helped. I mean, it wouldn't have resolved all differences and divisions, but it would have somehow helped bring everyone uh, together. And I think it did, to an extent, achieve that, uh, that function. Uh, but as I said, the bar when it comes to the global strategy is, is higher. Now, it's been now, what, a year and a half uh, since the global strategy was produced. And in all honesty, I can say that never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that um, being actionable would have been taken so much to the letter. And again, in all honesty, it's not because the global strategy is great. Uh, it's because there has been a number of different factors that both preceded the global strategy and obviously came after uh, the global strategy that really led to a pretty unprecedented alignment of the, of the stars. And when I mean actionable, I'm here specifically thinking about uh, what I think is one of the big messages of the global strategy, which is basically this idea of the European Union becoming more responsible for itself and achieving strategic autonomy, which then has very clear security and, def uh, and defense connotations and dimensions to it. Um, now, what has been the story here? The story was brewing, obviously, when the strategy was being produced, uh, and that is why there is such a strong push for uh, uh, the security of our union, which ended up being the first goal of the global strategy. It was not, and now that was not what I had imagined at all. Uh, I, in my original table of contents, we started global, and then we worked our way back and ended up with the security of the union. But the member states were not very happy with me, and so I had to reverse that order. Uh, so there was a very strong push for this already back then. Why? Well, the reason is obvious, insecurity rising, rising crises everywhere. Alongside this, there's a public opinion story, which I think is also another important piece of the puzzle, uh, meaning although now it's slightly improved, as you were saying, you know, we're back into slightly more optimistic days, um, but already, you know, even, even back then, uh, although the pessimism was high, although the Euroscepticism was extremely high, interestingly, that Euroscepticism did not affect security and defense. Uh, in fact, majorities across all member states, including the United Kingdom, funnily enough, uh, want to see more Europe, literally in these terms, when it comes to security and defense. So basically, this is an easy uh, one to push for if you're a politician. You've got, it makes sense, and you've got public opinion that supports you. Uh, so those were the two reasons that preceded, if you like, that, that were already there when we were working on the global strategy. Then comes the strategy, and then comes a cascade of different uh, factors. Factor number one, Brexit. Hmm? Now, the Brexit story is a story that is as much about fact as it is about fiction. Hmm? And now, it is a fact that the United Kingdom uh, has been a break when it comes to European defence. Uh, and that, in particular, it has been a break on specific aspects related to European defence. The whole debate, for instance, about a European headquarter mm, for uh, EU military missions and operations. This is something that the Brits were particularly uneasy with. Uh, likewise, uh, beginning the work on a permanent structured cooperation, uh, a PESCO. These were two points on which the Brits were definitely uh, uh, uneasy reason why in the global strategy itself they are in the text, I know where they are, 
but they are not explicit in the text. So in the text we talk, I can't remember exactly the wording on it, but we, we, we mention both, uh, but in a slightly hidden way. Because, of course, the consensus and, and the, the Brits were still fairly opposed uh, to, to this. But then the real story about the UK referendum uh, is, is a story about, about perception, about mood. Mm? And the general feeling was, and the general conviction, I would say, is that the United Kingdom was break number one. It was the most important break to European defence. I don't think that's the case. Uh, but what I think is irrelevant, mm? because that is what the majority, I would say, thought. And so the very fact that the UK referendum happened had a dynamic, you know, led to a dynamic uh, in terms of, you know, finally <gasps> we're relieved when we can now move forward when it comes to European defense. Whether it's true or false, it's irrelevant. That was the perception, and the perception then becomes a reality. Next factor, of course, is Donald Trump, to whom we're all extremely grateful. Thank God for Donald Trump. Uh, without Donald Trump, we would not be where we are when it comes to European defense. Um, again, this is a story which is as much about perception as it is about fact. The fact is that the United States has been asking Europeans for a number of years, certainly throughout the Obama administrations, to become more responsible for themselves. That is a fact. But because that message was sent in a graceful, uh, polite, uh, rational uh, way, we didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, it didn't, the, the, the penny didn't drop. So we needed Donald Trump to send that message in a slightly more direct uh, way. And that, again, has led to a dynamic when it comes to European defense. Then you have the commission. All of a sudden, again, this was already brewing when we were working on the global strategy. When we were working on the global strategy, the commission was beginning to have its first conversations, but we asked them, please hold your horses, because this has to come after the global strategy. But it was beginning to work on... Uh, its European Defence Action Plan, which then led to the work on the European Defence Fund, which is now being worked into the more specific, if you like, instruments uh, that, uh, that it's going to, uh, to generate. Um, but already there was indeed the sense that the Commission was going to become an actor in all this. It became then, uh, and it is becoming an increasing reality post-global strategy, indeed with the European Defence Action Plan and everything that came after it, which essentially means that for the first time in history, the European Commission does not consider defense to be a dirty word. And not only does it not consider it to be a dirty word, but it wants to put money into it. And why is money important? Not because of its absolute figures, although they are significant. Uh, we are talking in terms of the next multi-annual financial framework of 5.5 billion, so it's not peanuts. But 5.5 billion is not the 200 billion that Europeans collectively spend on defense. The reason why it is so significant is that that 5.5 billion, be it on research or be it on capability development, is about spending that money together. And, you know, we've been talking about defense cooperation for a long time, and it hasn't happened. Uh, so obviously you need to have some incentives for it to happen. And money tends to be an incentive in these things. Uh, so the commission, so you have you know, Brexit, you have Trump, you have the commission, you have Germany. Uh, and Germany is a key player in all of this. Again, you know, this comes from a national, I would say German evolution of a debate when it comes to defense matters. Um, and, and, and I think that debate has now led to a decision. Germany wants to invest in defense. Mm, we now know that. 
If you're Germany in an age of Trump, it's difficult to sell it in NATO terms. It really does kind of come across as you're doing it because Donald Trump asked you to do it, which isn't the sexiest thing to sell to public opinion. If you're Germany, because of your history, you cannot sell it through a national narrative. That doesn't go down too well. So for Germany to have a European framing for what is ultimately a national decision became essential. So you have Germany really starting to push on this uh, question. And then last uh, but not least is France. Now, France had an interesting evolution uh, because although when we were working on the global strategy, it was, as I said, you know, up there saying, you know, security in the, the union, da -da -da, you know, Europeans need to get more responsible and strategic autonomy. And that's all they cared about, to be honest. You know, the rest of the text could have basically said anything. That is all they cared about. Um, then after the strategy was, uh, was released, and therefore in the last uh, months of the Hollande presidency, France basically went through a breaks on uh, phase. It was still obviously very interested in defense, but it was not at all convinced that the EU was the way to do it. Uh, and uh, it had a tendency to want to do this more pragmatically, maybe bilaterally, maybe even in a NATO framework. Huh? But it was not so convinced that the procedural, institutional way for the EU to do things was the way to get things done on defense. So France had its break on until basically the election of, uh, of Emmanuel Macron. And then all of a sudden, uh, with the president like, like him, obviously the terms of the debate completely changed. And they therefore reset in motion the Franco-German motor when it comes in particular to defense. And that is a key tandem to have when it comes to defense because you need to have, if you like, the, the, the German tendency towards inclusivity and process and making everyone feel comfortable. But if you only have that, then you essentially tend to lack ambition. And so you need to, the French to reinstill some oomph into all of this. And putting these two together uh, has, so I think, really sort of set in motion a, a, a train, which I think now is very clearly leaving the station. Um, so how does this all relate back to the to the global strategy? I mean, I think, you know, we are indeed moving to what I would generally define as a security and defense union. What is a security and defense union? It's basically a system through all these mechanisms that are being set in place, a coordinated annual review on defense, the European Defense Fund, uh, a permanent structured cooperation uh, between member states, uh, a military planning and conduct uh, capability that we cannot call a headquarter, but that's what it is. Uh, so all of these things put together, essentially, I think, boil down to three things. First, you do defense research together. So you have the incentives now for the first time to do research together. You know, For us in the world of research, not defense research, but research, know uh, how important, for instance, Horizon 2020 projects are and how much through Horizon 2020 uh, and before then framework programs, we do research together much more than what we used to. So having a similar kind of mechanism when it comes to defense research, again, provides incentives that did not exist before. So you do defense research together. You think defense to together. You then make the capabilities together. You build them together. You procure to them together. You, know, you buy them uh, together. And you know, through these mechanisms, this is basically what is going to happen. And then you do operations together. 
Uh, and again, this is partly where PESCO comes in, where the headquarter comes in, etc. So all of this, I think, is leaving the station literally now. I mean, some bits have already left the station. PESCO we're going to see by the end of the year. Um, so all this is, is happening now. Last thing I want to say, and then I close, is, well, you know, so what about the global strategy? I mean, this would have happened anyway. And of course it would have happened anyway. But I think the global strategy and the fact that the order was kept, you know, you have the global strategy first and then you have a number of things coming after, has um, created not only a narrative but a process which has enabled basically what that third political rationale that I was first referring to, to actually persist, unity. So the fact that you do have an overarching text, an overarching framework within which you even have the Irish that are into this defense debate <laughs> because they recognize themselves into something that they worked on. Um, and so it really helps, if you like, to keep that unity, which, as I said, was the ultimate political rationale for engaging in this process in the first place. Thank you.